Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for January 28th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast regarding salient appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. Today, as Northwestern's Pritzker's School of Law opens its Securities Regulation Institute in sunny Coronado, California, where attendees will hear from notable panelists, including Delaware Supreme Court Chief Justice Leo Strine, SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce, and former acting U.S. Attorney General Sally Yates, we here at the Weekly Appellate Report will hear from our own set of distinguished experts on three of the most prominent securities law cases now being considered by the U.S. Supreme Court. One heard oral argument in December, another was granted cert earlier this month, and the third was just referred to the Solicitor General's office for its views. The case already argued, Lorenzo versus the SEC, will determine how broadly or narrowly the anti-fraud regulation rule 10b-5 should be read, and namely how central to a scheme to mislead or defraud investors a person needs to be before facing liability. Granted cert just after the new year, the Ninth Circuit appeal Emilex Corporation vs. Varjabedian deals with mergers, and specifically whether a company can be penalized for negligent omissions made to its shareholders recommending that they accept an acquiring company's tender offer, or whether a more culpable or fraudulent state of mind is required. The Ninth Circuit, parting ways with five other appellate sisters, has said that negligence in that context can be enough to merit liability. Other circuits have required a greater showing of scienter. And finally, in a case not yet granted cert, but that has been sent for the views of the SG, Toshiba vs. the Automotive Industries Pension Trust Fund asks whether domestically created securities that track the stock performance of foreign corporations not traded on U.S. markets can give rise to a securities claim where such a company commits fraud, as the Ninth Circuit has held, or whether, as the Second Circuit has held, there is not enough of a domestic connection there to overcome the presumption against extraterritoriality that SCOTUS has read into the Securities Exchange Act. Together, this trio of appeals will meaningfully affect the rules of the road for banks and other financial institutions, public and private companies alike, and of course, the government agencies charged with enforcing securities law. Happy to welcome onto the show today three guests very familiar with both navigating and enforcing those laws and regulations. We'll hear first from Peter Henning. He's a professor of law at Wayne State University and former DOJ attorney prosecuting bank fraud. We'll chat with him about Lorenzo versus the SEC. Then we'll be joined by O'Melveny and Myers Los Angeles partner Matthew Close, a veteran of high-stakes securities disputes. We'll discuss the case just granted cert. And finally, about that case still awaiting a potential cert girari grant, I'll speak with Brendan Cullen a partner in Sullivan and Cromwell's Palo Alto office, and an expert in complex securities and commercial litigation. First, though, a couple of housekeeping reminders. Don't forget that if you are tuned into this podcast, you are entitled to get one hour of California CLE credit if you go to the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Once you get there, just find a link to a short true-false test. Take that, and one hour of California CLE credit can be yours. Listeners finding and completing those tests is greatly appreciated as it helps us here at the Daily Journal provide this podcast free of charge and outside of our usual paywall. Also, don't forget, if you haven't already, that you can find us on the typical podcast streaming avenues as of a few months ago now. Just search Weekly Appellate Report in iTunes or the podcast app or just about anywhere that you listen to your podcast. Finding us there and subscribing, liking, rating, reviewing us is, is all greatly appreciated as it helps other folks find the program. Okay, with no further preamble, then I'm happy to welcome in our first guest to speak about a case that will clarify just whom the SEC can penalize for schemes that defraud investors. Peter Henning is a professor of law at Wayne State 
University. He writes an excellent securities-heavy white-collar watch column for the New York Times, and he worked on these matters at both the SEC and the Department of Justice. Professor Henning, welcome on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. So this is one of the most prominent securities cases being regarded by the Supreme Court this term. Uh, It seems to turn on a bit of a technical sort of semantic defense proffered by the, the petitioner here, and we'll get into that defense in a moment. But first, let's discuss his actions that led to the SEC enforcement. At bottom here, it's cases based on some emails that Francis Lorenzo, a a broker, had sent out to some potential investors about a a debt offering. It sounds like uh, Mr. Lorenzo knew that the debt he was suggesting to be purchased wasn't particularly a great investment. But the, the language he actually used in the email, he hadn't drafted himself. His, his bosses had apparently written it. Is that roughly uh, what happened? Uh, that's roughly it. And that they were trying to, this was for a company that was supposed to turn solid waste into energy. Maybe the, the <laughs> this goes to back to the future, in fact, um, you know, or you can pour uh, stuff from the trash and then you get energy out of it. But uh, turns out the company, the company's valuation was near zero, but they were trying to raise money in a preferred debt offering. And so they were trying to get their clients to uh, buy into this, even though the company, in fact, was facing very hard times and might well have gone under. So essentially, this is I don't want to call it a penny stock type of case, but it was close to a boiler room type of case where they're just trying to push out the securities and see if they can find some willing buyers. And it's fair to say that that Lorenzo here was was aware of all that, the the, the nature of the securities? Yes, he was aware of the problems at the company and um, that the securities being uh, offered to the investors were to describe them as high risk might be charitable, but certainly th- these were very very speculative securities. And what he did was took an email that was drafted by his boss, who interestingly enough has the same last name, although they're unrelated, and then packaged that and sent it out to investors to essentially try to peddle these securities. And so. A lot of this turns on, did he make the statements, at least that's what his argument is, that he did not make the false statements that were in the email, and therefore he can't be held liable. Right. He didn't draft them. He didn't make them. He only sort of transmitted them. So yeah, he, he sent them along and you know took what his boss wrote and then sent it out to his own investors. He, he was working for a broker-dealer firm, so clients of the firm received the email, and it had misstatements in there about the value of the company. Okay, and that uh, sort of semantic fight is important because the the main gist of the SEC enforcement action then is based on uh, Rule 10b-5, which prohibits folks like Mr. Lorenzo from making fraudulent statements or omitting important information in these sorts of communications. Um, but it also forbids sort of a just more general fraudulent conduct or participation in a fraudulent mm-hmm. scheme. So tell me, I guess, how that that rule sort of breaks down into different components and how it was treated by the SEC and then the reviewing uh, district court or the circuit court in D.C. 
Well, the, the case that um, Lorenzo is relying on is Janus Capital, and that, that was a private securities case in which the claim was that untrue statements were made to mutual fund investors, and the Supreme Court said you can only be liable if you make the statement. The Lorenzo case is an SEC enforcement action, and so it's different from a private securities lawsuit and what the SEC is claiming is that Lorenzo and, and the broker-dealer, which has already settled and is out of the case, but that they, under Rule 10b-5, one of the provisions is it's unlawful to employ any device scheme or artifice to defraud or to engage in any uh, actions that would operate as a fraud or deceit. And what the SEC is claiming here is even if Lorenzo didn't make the statements he just repackaged the email from his boss, that that was still part of a fraudulent scheme. He was trying to actively trying to deceive investors. And therefore, it really now becomes a question of, is, is fraud limited only to those who make the statements, or can others who are involved in it, essentially, Lorenzo was a conduit, can you also be held liable as being a participant in a fraudulent scheme. And that's really what the Supreme Court's going to have to decide. How broadly in an SEC enforcement action can they read Rule 10b-5, or is it just limited to the Janus, you've got to be the maker of the statement to be held liable? It also seems like the court will try to figure out how broadly it should, I guess, read its own precedent, that Janus case, because the core of the argument by Lorenzo here seems to be that if he is found liable, that sort of renders that previous case a, a dead letter because the the logic of that case is you only want to penalize the I guess the person ultimately responsible for the fraudulent statement going out. I guess what could you articulate in its strongest form that argument that Lorenzo is advancing? Yeah, right. What Lorenzo is arguing is that if you hold others liable, then essentially the Supreme Court's analysis of who makes a statement uh, no longer applies. And so that essentially you have written the Janus case out of the uh, precedents. The, the SEC's comeback to that is that Janus was, again, a private securities fraud lawsuit, whereas in an SEC enforcement action, their goal is to protect investors. And so that they may have a broader mandate and greater ability to bring cases than a private party who is suing for damages. And so I think the core of the SEC's argument is Janus is fine in a private securities fraud action, but this isn't a private securities fraud action. This is an enforcement action. What Lorenzo's arguing is then essentially what you have done is you said, Anybody in the vicinity of a misstatement can be held liable. Um, that may well have been the rule up until Janus, at least for the SEC. But the interesting question is, do you apply a private 10b-5 fraud case to the main securities enforcement agency? And I think that's a question the Supreme Court is just going to have to decide up front. They're going to have to say, are we going to limit the application of Rule 10b-5 to just those who make misstatements, or are we going to allow the SEC some broader leeway 
if you will, in pursuing its cases. You have written for um, the column that you keep for the New York Times, the White Collar um, Watch column, that there's sort of some cross-cutting trend lines uh, as to that specific point, how much leeway and deference the court might be willing to give the, the government, the SEC, here. Um, you said because this case takes place in the setting of a, a public company where the SEC is uh, going in there to protect shareholders, that might uh, weigh in, in the SEC's favor. But you also cite some recent high court precedent where the court has has ruled in cases that uh, tend to make the enforcement measures or actions taken by the SEC a little bit trickier in a case from, I think, two years ago that related to sort of time limits on disgorgement and yes. one previously uh, from, from last year that uh, quibbled with or found impermissible the way in which the SEC judges are, are assigned. Uh, so I guess right. with those two, tell me about how those sort of uh, in, interact. Well, it's interesting that I mean you have, and we've seen this in the last few years, on the Supreme Court has been articulated a growing hostility to the administrative state and that federal agencies may have too much power. So it may be that, for example, with the, the time limits on disgorgement, that the Supreme Court wants to see the power of agencies to pursue cases, uh, wants to see that uh, restricted, at least to some degree. On the flip side of that, though, those, those cases were not as directly related to investor protection. I guess they, they were to a degree, but it was really more about how the administrative state is used and operates whereas this goes more to the core of the SEC's mission. And that may be a reason why the court will take a different approach, that it may be more willing to give the SEC leeway when we're talking about fraud being perpetrated on investors versus how you appoint judges, how long the SEC has to bring a case. Those are more kind of the plumbing of the SEC Whereas this is the core mission of the SEC, and it, it'd be an interesting case to write to say, well, the SEC can't pursue someone who was in the vicinity of a fraud and help to encourage it, but we're not going to hold that person liable. That, that may be a hard opinion for the justices to write, although it's certainly possible. That's going to be my next question is, I guess, what an opinion would look like that would side with uh, Lorenzo? Because it, it does sound like it'd be one that might meet some skeptical readers that the court would have to say, essentially, right, even if you participated in this fraud, you you knew about it, you helped it go along. If you weren't really the, the principal at the very top that sort of started it, conceived it, then the SEC has to ignore you, basically. That, that's what it sounds like the court would have to say to side with Lorenzo, right? It might or it would push the SEC more toward pursuing people for aiding and abetting rather than someone like Lorenzo, who it said was a key participant in the fraudulent scheme. It could hamstring the SEC to a degree. And it, you know, writing the opinion for Lorenzo would push the majority on the court into saying that, well, you know, that this parts of rule 10 B five about scheme or artifice to defraud or uh, things that operate as a fraud or deceit. Those are really just other ways of saying you have to make a misstatement. And 
you wonder whether that tortures the language a little too much in Rule 10b-5. 10b-5 is designed to be a broad anti-fraud provision. And so, you know, can you have deceptive conduct when you are just passing along someone else's lie? That's certainly a possibility. If you want to write it for Lorenzo, you have to say, no, it's only you, the maker of the statement. And that may be too restrictive for some members of the court. And remember, Janus was a five to four decision Mm -hmm. by the Supreme Court. And the four dissenters are all still on the court. And so if they can attract a fifth vote, then they could write a more broad interpretation. And Justice Kavanaugh's out because Mm -hmm. he was on the panel that decided this in the D.C. Circuit. So it's only eight justices here. So be interesting to see if they can get a majority, get five votes in favor of the SEC. If not, then it leaves securities enforcement up in the air and they're going to need to pick out another case to explain this. Right, because say the liberal side of the court doesn't pick off one more conservative justice and it's four to four. The ruling against Lorenzo stands from the D.C. circuit, but as you say, there's no clarification of how broad Janus is or how the rule should be applied. Right. And, and that means that you know they're going to have to pick out another case to be able to explain it, this is what the application of Rule 10b-5 is. Um, and the court has, uh, you know, in the insider trading area, certainly taken a more expansive view of Rule 10b-5, but this isn't insider trading. Maybe it takes a more restrictive approach. I, I think it's more of a wait and see here, although that the tenor of the oral argument seemed to indicate the, some skepticism expressed by the justices about Lorenzo's position, that, that may be taking a narrow reading too far and too narrow. You mentioned that even if Lorenzo here is decided by the court as an improper sort of defendant for the main charge that um, the SEC could still go about doing accomplice liability type enforcement. What Does that make the job of the SEC appreciably harder? I guess what's the problem with just charging him as an accomplice to something like that? Well, charging a accomplice or aiding and abetting liability, one of the cornerstones of that is you usually have to show that the person understood what was going on and intended to assist in the fraudulent conduct. And, you know, this is what is always a challenge in any white collar case, especially any securities fraud case, is proving intent. What did the person know? What did they intend by their conduct? Um, And that a defendant can often offer a defense of, I didn't know what was going on. I misunderstood or I, you know, maybe I was negligent, but I didn't intend to aid in fraudulent conduct. It would make the SEC's life a bit more difficult. Doesn't make it impossible, but it would curtail how broadly they can throw out the net for who they want to try to bring into a case. And so I think there's some concern at the SEC on the SEC side of this that they like the ability to be freewheeling. They want to pick out who they want to accuse of a violation and would prefer not to have to jump through extra hoops. And if they have to go down the aiding and abetting road, that is an extra hoop that they would have to pursue. I suppose there are always sort of equities or arguments against having uh, too freewheeling of a government enforcement Mm -hmm. agency. I mean, if you take a person, say, that was part of a scheme but 
but not knowingly. Say Lorenzo here passed along this email thinking it was all on the up and up. You know, are those the kind of folks that could be, I guess, enforced upon? And I mean, I think Lorenzo here had his ability to participate in securities trading sort of revoked forever. You know, are those the sort of yeah. folks that would be in the crosshairs were the court to side with the SEC in this kind of case? Well, it, you know, that's, it, there's always the challenge in any fraud case of how far how far to the edge do you want to go? How many participants do you want to reach? The, the person who makes the statement is easy. You know, the, the author here of the email settled the case, and that's an easy case for the SEC. As you go a step or two or three further out, then it becomes more difficult to establish the requisite intent or in securities language, scienter for this, which means either showing they intended to violate or they were at least reckless. And so it would require the SEC to gather more evidence and could present a hurdle to them that they may well look at a case and go, you know, sometimes there's a defendant who is a bridge too far and you just go, all right, we're going to have to give this person a pass. Now, Lorenzo got knocked out of the industry. That was one of the remedies imposed on him. That's a a very substantial remedy. That means I can't pursue my chosen profession. And I think there you do get concerned that maybe the SEC has too much authority or might be willing to push the envelope a little too much and catch up individuals who may not have had a significant role in a fraudulent scheme. Okay. Um, maybe just one last one in terms of, I guess, how you might see the case playing out. It, it sounds like one where the outcome at this stage is you know, fairly in doubt. The court is sort of balanced uh, ideologically and especially lacking uh, Justice Kavanaugh, fairly equally split. Uh, do you have thoughts on the how it might turn out and just sort of the overall implications depending on which way it goes? Well, it'd be interesting. Um, one of the uh, key players in this is Justice Alito, who at the oral argument expressed some hostility to Lorenzo's position. And Justice Alito is a former United States attorney. Uh, he was the U.S. attorney in New Jersey. And New Jersey brings a number of securities cases. And he may be a little bit more attuned to the SEC's argument here and be willing to uphold the SEC's authority to pursue this kind of scheme liability, even if it doesn't include just the maker of the false statement. I think he's going to be a key player here. If he is willing to side with the SEC, then you could have a fairly broad reading of Rule 10b-5 adopted by the court. Um, if he's not, then it becomes very interesting. Uh, you're right that if with only eight justices, if it splits 4-4, we have the D.C. Circuit opinion, and then we've got to wait and say, all right, where's the next case going to come from that could actually explain Janice's impact in an enforcement action. And this is important to the SEC, too, because they this is their bread and butter. Um, you know, these kind of fraud cases, investor protection cases, this is the heart of what they're concerned about. Indeed, Jay Clayton has said, um, you know, the chair of the SEC has said, look, we have to protect individual investors. And so I think this is a decision that's going to be very important to the SEC as to how they move forward in the future. As you say, many interested parties will be curious how it turns out. Uh, Professor Peter Henning from Wayne State University, thanks for being on our show. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Brian. 
After granting review earlier this month, the Supreme Court in Emilex first Vargebedian will consider whether a negligent state of mind is culpable enough for liability to attach, where the company advised its shareholders to accept a tender offer in a merger, but where plaintiffs say that company omitted a bit of material information that might have given shareholders pause before accepting that offer. The Ninth Circuit parted ways with other circuits in holding that negligence is indeed enough. For more, we're pleased to be joined by Matthew Close. He's a partner with O'Melveny and Myers here in Los Angeles and a seasoned veteran of securities disputes. Mr. Close, welcome onto the podcast. Uh, thank you. It's nice to be here. Okay, so the, the central issue here of maybe a couple, but the heart of it is whether there needs to sort of be a, a showing of bad faith on the part of a company making either misleading statements or misleading omissions in the context or in relation to um, tender offers that tend to come about in the context of corporate mergers. And correct me if I have that not quite right, but but also first, could I ask you just for a moment to lay out a bit as to what exactly tender offers are and the context they tend to come about, and I guess why it's so important that companies make those offers sort of with complete information to the parties they're making the offer to. Sure. So a tender offer is a structure that's used in certain, in some uh, merger and acquisition context. Um, basically, the buyer in a tender offer makes a, basically says to the shareholders of the target, we are willing to buy all the shares or up to a certain number of shares for a set price. So in this, in the, in the case of actually the Emulex case, the buyer of Aga offered to buy, uh, I think, all the shares at $8 per share. And then the stockholders, by a certain date, can decide whether or not to tender, deliver their shares, and receive the cash. So it's a structure used in mergers and acquisitions. The main alternative structure is to um, do it through a merger agreement and a shareholder vote. So this is an alternative structure to one where you have a, a stockholder meeting and a stockholder vote. But it's been, uh, you know, various times over the preceding uh, decades, it's been uh, more popular at other times, a little bit less out of vogue. And in, in 1968, uh, Congress passed the Williams Act to provide more regulation around tender offers and the statute that's at issue in the Emulex case was, was part of the Williams Act. Yeah, that's uh, Section 14E. Is that of the Securities and Exchange Act then that's being considered here? Correct. And I guess what, tell me a bit more about how that bears on, on the question here. Does it say exactly sort of what's required uh, when you're making a, a tender offer? Well, the, the SEC has a whole bunch of rules that regulate tender offers. and But Section 14E uh, basically create, you know, makes it unlawful to in a, in a tender offer to make untrue statements of material facts or to otherwise engage in fraud. So it's basically, you know, generally been viewed as the anti-fraud provision applicable to tender offers. Now, as you mentioned here, um, one party, as the way this usually works, that the acquiring company made a tender offer to Emulex's shareholders, but that company is not at the heart of the, of the litigation. Emulex is because of something that that company, the, the target company, said to its own shareholders. Is that right? It, it, it sounds like the company sort of oversold how good of a deal the, uh, the acquiring company was making to the shareholders. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, I don't think that's a fair conclusion. It certainly has to, that, that sort of determination has certainly not been made by any court. I think, so you're correct, though, that the, in, a, in a tender offer structure, 
the target company's board regularly files what's called a recommendation statement pursuant to, I think it's SEC Rule 14D9, that you know basically sets forth the board's recommendation to its shareholders, the reasons why the board is recommending that the shareholders tender in. And so this is often, you know, a similar to, uh, you know, the recommendation in a, in a proxy statement if you have a shareholder vote structure. And so the allegation here is that the Emulex and, its, uh, and the members of its board of directors, in their recommendation statement that they uh, filed in connection with the tender offer, omitted allegedly material information regarding their financial advisor's analysis. So one aspect of a recommendation statement often includes the uh, investment bank's reasons uh, in usually giving a fairness opinion to the board of the target. And so the allegation here is that um, in that recommendation statement, Emulex and its board omitted certain material information regarding the financial advisor's work and presentation. Um, I would note, just in the, in the reason why at the start of the response, I somewhat disagree with you. I think even in the Ninth Circuit decision that's under review, um, although the Ninth Circuit articulated um, a rather liberal uh, rule, I think at the, towards the end of their decision, they expressed some skepticism, though, as to whether the, the allegations in this complaint could really even establish a material omission. So, you know, I think as often may be the case in Supreme Court cases, the the facts are <laughs> fallen a little bit by the wayside, and there certainly was this was resolved on a motion to dismiss in the trial court. So there's been no sort of findings on the on the ultimate factual question. Right. Okay. I, I should have been more clear. I, I guess I, I meant to say sort of the plaintiffs are claiming that perhaps Emulex left a piece out of its recommendation that that showed. Maybe the deal wasn't as good as the shareholders might have thought, based on sort of the rest yeah. of the recommendation. That that's right. That's a, that is the allegation, and that's a fair summary of it. Okay. Um, but so then the key legal question here is whether or not there needs to be a showing of of scienter. If there needs to be a showing of more than negligence, and other circuits to answer that question have said yes. If you're suing a company for making some sort of material misstatement or omission, you have to show they did it intentionally and not just negligently. But the Ninth Circuit disagreed with, I think, five other circuits and said negligence essentially is enough. Is that right? And what was their reasoning? So you're right. Um, the Ninth Circuit uh, expressly disagreed with the Second, Third, Fifth, Sixth, and Eleventh Circuits and held that uh, mere negligence would be enough. I think the, how the Ninth Circuit got there was, um, I think, first and foremost, it was somewhat, you know, technical or literal reading of the statute. The, the, the way it's statute is, it has says it's a, be unlawful to make an untrue statement or of a material omission, and then there's an or, and it says or to engage in fraud, deception, or manipulative acts or practices. And so the, I think the Ninth Circuit basically said, well. You have that or there, and it's either or, and the first part of that clause that talks about untrue statements of material facts or omissions of material facts doesn't use the word intentionally or fraudulently, so on that first prong, so to speak, that there's no textual, there's no language in the statute that suggests fraud or um, 
deception. So, I mean, I think that's really the linchpin of how the Ninth Circuit got to the outcome it reached. Um, they also analogized to another um, statutory scheme, seventeen Section 17A2 of the 33 Act, that uses similar language and does not, has been held not to include a C-enter element, too. So, I mean, I think that's probably a fair summary of how the Ninth Circuit got to the outcome and and, and the reason why it disagree with five of its sister circuits. As you, you mentioned, on uh, one of those sister circuits is the second circuit where you know the bulk of securities litigation ends up finding itself. So what is the approach in, in that and, and the other disagreeing circuits? What is requ- what, what's the required showing in, in those courts? Uh, so there is a C-enter element, which is generally considered an intent to deceive, an intent to defraud, in some circumstances, it can, you know, a sort of a high degree of reckless indifference can can constitute that scienter element, but it's basically, you know, an intent to deceive or intent to defraud. So you got to knowingly, so in, in this context, you know, whatever the material misstatement or omission is, it needs to be done, you know, as part of an intent to deceive, an intent to defraud the stockholders. And, you know, as we know from other areas of securities law, like the Rule 10b-5 cases, that intent element can be quite difficult to plead and prove. And so it is it is um, generally viewed as a high barrier to entry, so to speak. Okay, one other uh, sort of ancillary question here, too, is just who can bring these sorts of cases, this is not an SEC enforcement action. It's a, a private action brought by a, with a group of the Emulex shareholders, and there's some dispute as to whether or not the 14E even provides the ability for a private right of action to be brought. Is that also at uh, an issue here before the Supreme Court? Well, that is a good question. So I think it's been assumed for decades, and the cases that we talked about in those other circuits have all arise, I think all, most every one of these cases arises in a private stockholder bringing the case. So I think for a long time, it's been, I guess, assumed or taken for granted that there is a private right of action under Section 14E for a stockholder. But, and, and in the court below in the Emulex case, it, this was not really an issue in the Ninth Circuit. This question was not put squarely to the Ninth Circuit. Nevertheless, in connection with this Supreme Court, cert petition, the United States Chamber of Commerce uh, filed a brief raising and putting front and center the question of whether there really should be any private right of action at all for individual stockholders to bring claims under Section 14E. And, and you know, so the, the issue is, and now is certainly in play. I think there's a lot of debate in the bar as to whether the Supreme Court will address that issue in this case. But uh, the United States Chamber of Commerce's brief has certainly put it high on the agenda, if not in this case, in potentially future cases. So I think it's, uh, it remains to be seen whether it ends up being part of this case, that question. But there's certainly an effort in some quarters to, to get the court to address that issue squarely. One last one. You know, the, the way this case presents sort of offers the opportunity to, you know, for folks to forecast a little bit. We have on the one side, one Ninth Circuit here, as opposed to five other circuits that are that are disagreeing. Um, the case was presented to a, a Roberts court that has, has gotten a reputation for, you know, generally being fairly business friendly. And so one might think now the more conservative leaning court might not be terribly sympathetic. The, the, 
the plaintiff's claims here that would, if their rule was adopted, tend to gum up a lot of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how um, the court might tend to, to regard this, this sort of case that it'll um, work on either? I'm not sure if it's going to be heard this term or, or next, but how, how they might consider it? Well, it's likely to be, it's almost certainly, I think, going to be heard this term, although it hasn't been set for argument. But I think everyone's expectation is that it will. In terms of uh, crystal balling and projecting, I'm always a dangerous sport, but a, a sport all of us enjoy uh, engaging in. I guess my view would be taking a step back. We have a, for decades, you know, five circuits have consistently held one view, and the Ninth Circuit has expressly parted ways, um, and the court has taken review of that Ninth Circuit case. I think for the last decade or two, any better who uh, any wagerer who would pick against the Ninth Circuit in this scenario and would would wager on a reversal would uh, have done very very well with that betting strategy. So I think just without even getting to the merits, you know, a Ninth Circuit case coming up where they you know expressly disagree with five other circuits, uh, I think one has to suspect this may fall into the camp of a Supreme Court reversal of the Ninth Circuit. You know, I do think. There are a lot of challenges with the Ninth Circuit's rationale here. You know, in effect, they've basically read the statute to say that there's liability for negligent statements, but, you know, if the claim is based on acts or practices, those have to be fraudulent because the second part of the statute speaks to acts or practices. So basically, under the Ninth Circuit's approach, statements can create liability if made negligently, but acts or practices can only give rise to liability if done fraudulently. And I think it's hard to really get your head around why Congress would have wanted that dichotomy. I think it's probably more likely that this statutory scheme will be read and applied consistently with Rule 10b-5, which has similar language and is viewed as sort of an integrated single standard that, uh, that requires C-enter, um, whether we're looking at statements, acts, or practices. So, and I, and I think the merger litigation overlay that's highlighted in um, the SIFMA amicus brief, the securities industries amicus brief, and the sort of proliferation in merger litigation in the federal courts, I think that's going to be in the background and perhaps play into this a little bit. But ultimately, I think, I, don't, I, think it, I find it hard to anticipate that the court will want to upset what has been basically viewed as largely settled law for decades, you know, based on the second, third, fifth, sixth, and eleventh circuits precedents, and basically upset all that sort of settled expectations and settled precedents. So, if I were a betting a, bet, a better, I think I, I think most of the smart money is going to probably be on a reversal here. You know, uh, smart money's been wrong before. Yeah. Maybe just one one last way. So it, it sounds like if. Um more likely outcome that, that you paint as, the, as a reversal that would be sort of a status quo. But if the Ninth Circuit's rule were, in fact, to be adopted, I guess how big of a change, how big of an impact would that be for folks in the securities industry and, and practitioners uh, advising those actors? So I do, I, I think if the Ninth Circuit is affirmed, I do think it will have significant impact. Um, taking a step back, one, the tender offer structure is often used or in many cases is, is selected because it usually can be executed more quickly than a merger agreement with stockholder meeting st structure. 
So tender, and I think the facts, even in this case, I think there was the whole tender offer process maybe lasted only a couple months. So a main feature that appeals to companies for the tender offers is that they are viewed as being quicker to execute. And so if you now have a a litigation regime that allows for, you know, simple negligence claims to potentially lead to um, injunctions against tender offers based on material, allegedly material misstatements or omissions, I think it makes a tender offer structure a lot less appealing in, in many more circumstances because instead of being viewed as a somewhat simpler, somewhat expeditious method of effectuating the transaction, I think it will potentially be now seen as carrying disproportionate uh, litigation risk on the front end. Uh, Matthew Close is a partner with O'Melveny and Myers here in Los Angeles. Thanks very much for being on our podcast, Mr. Close. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. If you buy a security that's been created and sold domestically, does that alone create the basis for a Securities Exchange Act claim against a foreign company? If, as in the case of Toshiba versus the Automotive Industries Pension Trust Fund, the security is not connected to that foreign company in really any way other than that its value tracks the corporation's performance on a foreign stock market, the Ninth Circuit says yes, but the Second Circuit says no. And Brendan Cullen, partner in Sullivan and Cromwell's Palo Alto offices, is here to explain the details of this case and how this split might resolve. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Okay, so according to your firm bio, uh, cases you work on often involve complex securities. Uh, that seems like it might describe the, the security at issue here, at least for a, something of a securities layman like myself. We're talking about American depository receipts. What what exactly are those? It sounds sort of like a, a share you can buy domestically in a foreign corporation, one that doesn't trade on domestic markets, but it's not exactly a share of the company, right? Could you just describe to me what we're talking about here? Sure. At a high level, an ADR is a security that is created typically by a bank, a U.S. bank, who holds actual shares of the foreign corporation, the foreign issuer, and sells securities in the U.S., sometimes on uh, the New York Stock Exchange, sometimes on the -the over-the-counter market, to anyone who wants to buy them. And what you buy, effectively, is a security that moves in the same direction as the in terms of its value, as does the underlying stock. So in the case that we're going to talk about here, if you bought an ADR on Toshiba, Toshiba doesn't have stock that trades in the New York Stock Exchange or anywhere in the U.S. It just trades on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. And as that stock goes up and down, you could buy an ADR that references Tokyo, I'm sorry, uh, Toshiba stock. And as the Toshiba stock goes up, your ADR goes up. As it goes down, your ADR goes down. It's just like owning Toshiba stock, even though you can't own Toshiba stock because Toshiba doesn't sell stock in the U.S. Then forgive me if this sounds like a dumb question, but in in sort of the increasingly globalized and and, and close-knit world, what prevents a person that wants to purchase something like this, an ADR, uh, a security in Toshiba from purchasing it from, I guess, the, the Nikkei index is where they trade in Japan. You know, Is it just that it's more convenient to be able to trade it on the New York Stock Exchange? Are there a lot of regulatory barriers from them buying it from the company over from Japan's market? So that's a good question. The main driver for the demand for these, that I, as I understand it, is there are folks who manage money in the United States who are prohibited either by rule or by 
the contract by which they're, you know, they, they manage money from purchasing non-U.S. securities. And so they're not allowed to buy. They're not allowed to go to Tokyo to buy, not you know, virtually go to Tokyo to buy Toshiba stock. And they would like to trade in international, as you just said, they would like to trade in international companies, but are prohibited from doing so by some something or other. And so an ADR is an opportunity for those kinds of investors to buy foreign company stock effectively. Okay, then safe to say, and, and sort of to put it succinctly, and for the purposes of this case, if you are an individual or a pension fund, as the case is here, holding an ADR in a company like Toshiba, if Toshiba stock goes down for whatever reason, including, say, corporate malfeasance, um, then the value of your security goes down, right? Exactly, exactly. Like I said, it's just like owning, for for purposes of the uh, you know, the, the financial aspects of owning stock, it's just like owning stock in that corporation. Mm-hmm. Good news for that corporation is good news for an ADR holder, and bad news is bad news. And and corporate malfeasance is essentially what's been accused by the this plaintiff trust fund against Toshiba, right? Some sort of fraudulent accounting for uh, the, the the course of years that I think the company has essentially admitted. Do I have that right? Uh, that's right. That, uh, well, that uh, effectively it is a charge that Toshiba engaged in accounting malfeasance in in Japan and its business in Japan. And when that was when that came to light, it had a negative effect on Toshiba stock, and thus on Toshiba ADRs, as we said before. But the the problem for the plaintiffs, first according to the the district court here, was that that all notwithstanding, even if they were harmed by fraudulent actions of, of Toshiba. The Security Exchange Act didn't provide them a remedy. They can't sue that company because the the Securities and Exchange Act doesn't reach extraterritorially. The Ninth Circuit, though, overturned. So they say if you bought this ADR here, that's domestic enough for the Securities Exchange Act. Can you tell me how the the Ninth Circuit explained their their reasoning there? Sure. So there's an opinion. to, To understand what this case was about, you have to go back to another opinion um, from the Supreme Court called Morrison versus National Australia Bank, and this was decided in 2010, opinion written by Justice Scalia. And Morrison basically said that the we are going to assume that the Securities Exchange Act, like like most acts of uh, enacted by Congress, do not have an extra ter- extraterritorial application. They only apply to domestic conduct unless Congress explicitly says that they apply to non-domestic conduct. And the uh, Exchange Act, the Securities Exchange Act, is not one of those acts that has explicit extraterritorial applications. So we're going to apply it. We're going to assume there's a presumption against extraterritoriality, and we're going to read the statute accordingly. And the Supreme Court said what we're looking for is whether transactions in securities are domestic. Did they occur domestically? And in that case, you had Australians living in Australia who bought stock in National Australia Bank, which is an Australian entity, whose stock traded on the Australian Stock Exchange. And so there was no domestic aspect to that transaction at all. And that, the court said, was not enough. What that case didn't answer was what happens when you have some of those things and not all of those things. So what happens when you have a security that is unquestionably bought in the U.S., 
but that relates to a foreign issuer and that involved misconduct, who, who doesn't issue securities on the on a U.S. exchange, and involved misconduct in a foreign country, say. And that has, that issue has come up in other cases, and one of the it, it, one of the cases it came up in was a case called Park Central in the Second Circuit, involving Porsche uh, securities traded in the U.S. that were not traded; they were not Porsche securities; they were derivatives, they were swaps, uh, cre- securities created by people not in Germany but in the U.S to move with respect to Porsche stock, but that Porsche had nothing to do with. And when Porsche engaged in, allegedly engaged in behavior that caused the stock price to move, caused the swap value to move in a way that was disadvantageous to those plaintiffs, they sued. They sued Porsche. They said that you, you did these things, and those things had an effect on this domestic transaction. We engage in this transaction in the U.S., and your misconduct changed the changed the value of it in a way that we don't think was appropriate. And the Second Circuit, which is the court that covers New York and Connecticut, said, no, no, Morrison has a presumption against extraterritoriality. And so while having a domestic transaction, that is someone who buys a security in the U.S., is enough is necessary. You have to have that in order to have a securities case. It's not sufficient because we also have to consider whether or not the conduct at issue is the sort of conduct that the Securities Exchange Act is is aimed at regulating. And the decision there was no, because everything that happened was in Germany. And Porsche had nothing to do with the creation of those securities in that case. Toshiba is a very similar case. These are called unsponsored ADRs. When I when we talked earlier about ADRs, ADRs come in a variety of flavors. Some of them are sponsored ADRs, where the company actually goes to the U.S., works with the bank that I mentioned earlier to help the bank create the securities that, so the people in the U.S. can can purchase them. And in a sponsored ADR situation, the foreign issuer actually produ- produces SEC reports, like annual reports, very similar to a ten. K like that you you would see in a domestic company and and has a great great deal of involvement in the creation of these ADRs. Toshiba didn't do that. Toshiba Toshiba's ADRs in this case were called unsponsored ADRs, where the, a bank just goes buys Toshiba stock and sells securities, sells ADRs reference to those stock without any involvement from Toshiba. And so it's very similar to the Porsche case in that you have securities being traded in the U.S. The ADRs. That reference a foreign issuer's securities, in this case Toshiba stock, misconduct occurring overseas, presumably regulated by the Japanese securities regulators, and a lawsuit brought that says, hey, my U.S.-based securities were affected by all that conduct overseas involving a non-U.S. issuer who doesn't have securities that it issues in the U.S., but I would like to be able to sue on it. Second Circuit said no. Ninth Circuit said yes. Ninth Circuit said, you know what? The only thing we're going to look for is a domestic transaction. We've got a domestic transaction. We've got these ADRs in the U.S. bought in the U.S. by this U.S.-based plaintiff. That's enough. And and along the way, the Ninth Circuit said, oh, by the way, that ninth, that Second Circuit case was decided incorrectly. Yeah, you described them. Those cases do sound fairly similar. So here, then, a fairly apparent circuit split is created. And and as I understand it, at least the the, the two circuits that tend to deal the most with laws of security 
claims. So that seems like the sort of question that would um, require some resolution. Um, one thing you also said, I had noticed the, the language, the unsponsored uh, variety of the American depository receipt here. It seems like it is just sort of figures somewhat importantly. I know the language sort of of civil procedure and personal jurisdiction doesn't really factor in necessarily here, but thinking about this case, I was thinking, well, if uh, Toshiba benefits and maybe wants these ADRs to be traded, uh, you know, wherever, as you know, as many places as they can be, that sort of sounds like a purposeful availment type thing. They're, they're reaching out to try to get folks in the U.S. to, to buy this quasi share. But you're saying there's really not a whole lot of action on the part of the company, just uh, maybe a, a brokerage or something buys them and then sells them and, and, and all the action is you know, done by folks outside of the company. So there's not – I'm saying like there's less of a connection between the company and, and the U.S. then. Yeah, yes, exactly. And, and so uh, just to make things even more complicated, there are, there are multiple flavors even of unsponsored ADRs. And you've touched on, I think, sort of where, what those different flavors can be. And in fact, the Ninth Circuit uh, sent the case back to the district court, the trial court, to say, you know, plaintiffs haven't adequately alleged certain stuff that they will need to allege in order to get this case moving. And one of those things is a domestic transaction that they actually did, in fact, buy the security in the U.S., that they, you know, they became contractually obligated to buy the security in the U.S., the money changed hands in the U.S., that kind of thing. The other thing they thought that the uh, plaintiffs might be able to plead is that while these, while unsponsored, in the sense that Toshiba, you know, isn't an issuer, do, doesn't file reports with the SEC, and wasn't super involved in the creation of these ADRs, didn't have a contract itself with the bank that that sponsored that, that issued the ADRs. Even in the unsponsored, there can be more and less cooperation between the issuer and the bank. And the plaintiffs suggested in briefing at the Ninth Circuit, but hadn't put in their complaint in the trial court, that this might be one of those situations where Toshiba actually did engage in some, in some conduct to make the issuance of the ADRs possible, easier, better, et cetera. So, so that is a little TBD. And, and it may be that those issues, so you had mentioned that uh, this, is, this is a case, circuit splits are the kinds of cases where uh, the Supreme Court, that's one of the, the Supreme Court's jobs, is to resolve splits among the circuits on important issues. And I think this certainly qualifies as an important issue. The only question, uh, and one thing that the plaintiffs said in the Supreme Court, so this, so Toshiba has brought this case to the Supreme Court and asked the Supreme Court to weigh in. In opposing that uh, petition for certiorari, the plaintiffs have said, you know, this isn't what they, they said what, what people say to the Supreme Court to try to commit to not to take a case, even where there's a circuit split like there is here. They've said this isn't a good vehicle for that for the Supreme Court to decide this because we could still lose for completely different reasons that wouldn't and if we did lose, then this case wouldn't present a good opportunity for the court. If we did lose because we couldn't, for example, establish a domestic transaction which everyone agrees is necessary, then this wouldn't be a good vehicle to decide this. Right. Right. But we'll see. We'll see if the court agrees that that is a sufficient problem. Okay. Yeah, because you say the the Ninth Circuit just sort of remanded it to give the plaintiffs a, a fresh try. But the, the the company Toshiba, as you say, has petitioned for review just to make sure that holding from the Ninth Circuit that they might be liable for this sort of situation is overturned. Their argument, Toshiba's, is essentially, hey, look at Morrison, the prior Supreme Court precedent. That sort of is the long and short of it. That the act only applies to. You know, inside of the boundaries of the U.S., we're outside. We didn't do a whole heck of a lot to 
caused this security to be traded, and that's that's the argument. Pretty much, and and I think they and, and there's uh, there have, has been briefing put into by what are called amici, so people who are interested in in this issue and and provide potentially a different perspective on it or an additional perspective on it to the Supreme Court. People have put in briefs and have said, you know, the problem with the Ninth Circuit's rule is it doesn't just reach ADRs, it doesn't just reach unsponsored ADRs, it reaches potentially any kind of security you could create that would reference a foreign foreign issuer's securities and and those can be created anytime anywhere by anybody and foreign issuers potentially can be sitting out there believing they have issued no securities in the US, believing they have no relationship to the US, aren't subject to US laws. But people in the U.S., clever traders in the U.S., have come up with securities that reference those companies' stock or, or securities of some kind. And so long as those trade in a domestic transaction, you know, you and I agree to do a swap on some companies, some European companies' stock that has no stock in the U.S., doesn't issue securities in the U.S., believes it has, you know, immunized itself from potential liability in the U.S., and if something happens to that company and I say, now, wait a minute, that company misbehaved. And as a result, I got the short end of the stick and you're in my swap. I could go sue and that company would, would have no idea who I was, would have no idea that they had this potential liability sitting out there. But per the Ninth Circuit's rules, so long as I could say, well, I bought this transaction in the U.S., that would do it. That would be enough. Yeah. And so it isn't, it, it, it's even if, even if it was just ADRs, ADRs is a multi-billion dollar market, but derivatives is literally trillions of dollars potentially. So it, it's a big deal. And, and I think that's what, that's what the court has heard from not only from Toshiba, but from its uh, various amici as well. Yeah. In, in reading some of those amicus filings, you, know, you always get the, the impression from amicus filings that if the court doesn't hold in the way they're arguing for, you know, everything's going to go topsy-turvy and things will be terrible. But in your view, how, how big of a wrench could be thrown into the sort of the securities industry generally if the Ninth Circuit's rule ends up saying being adopted eventually by the Supreme Court? Is, is, would that really change the – it seems like from reading the filings that would really change the, the way people sort of approach the practice to this point. In your view, would it really change things uh, quite a bit? You know, it's a, it's a very good question, and I, I don't know the answer. The Park Central case was is the, that's the law in at least until the Supreme Court says something differently. That's the law in New York, uh, you know, which is for sure the most important market for the creation of securities. So I think that uh, that has put a damper on the kind of creative lawyering that I think you might have seen more of had it not been the rule. Um, and, and creative creative lawyering, by which I mean people who find themselves having lost out on a trade because of something that happens in a foreign country and deciding that they have a, they have a chance to recoup some of their losses from the issuer itself. Uh, you've seen less of that, and you're, you probably are continuing to see less of that than you might otherwise have seen. The Ninth Circuit's rule is the rule everywhere the Ninth Circuit is, which is you know California and all the West Coast and Hawaii and Alaska, and several of the non-West Coast states as well. Which are not as critically critical in terms of the creation of securities, probably as as New York would be. So I don't know that how much of an impact it's had to date. If that became the rule nationwide, it'd be interesting. I mean, it, it is 
you know, don't forget that what what's happening here is is the court is construing a statute of Congress. It's not a constitutional provision or something. So if Congress decides, geez, this this extraterritorial application of our Securities Exchange Act is resulting in sort of berserk distortions in securities markets, Congress can fix that. That's the, I guess the good news is, however bad it turns out to be. It's not unfixable. It's not. It's not forever enshrined in the Constitution. It's just the Securities Exchange Act, so it can be fixed. Well, we can probably leave it there for now. Uh, still, a ways to go before any resolution. Recently, the the views of the Solicitor General were called for, but we'll um, probably have a ways to go before we hear whether or not the case will be heard. But uh, Brendan Cullen from Sullivan and Cromwell, thanks very much for being on our podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brian. Okay, that is our program for Monday, January 28th, 2019, our special securities law episode. Hope everyone down in Coronado is enjoying the Securities Regulation Institute. Thank you to my three guests today, Peter Henning, Matthew Close, and Brendan Cullen. I should also thank my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. And thank you as well for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Please don't forget a couple of things. First, that CLE credit is easily available to listeners of our show. Go to dailyjournal.com, find our podcast library there, click on this episode, and a link should be there taking you to a short true-false test after which one CLE credit can be yours. Also, if you haven't already, we hope you'll find us on the mobile podcast streaming outlets through which we are now available, principally iTunes and the podcast app. Just search for Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal. You should be able to find us doing so, finding us there, and subscribing, rating, Reviewing us is tremendously appreciated as it lets us know what you think about the show and also helps folks out there in the podcast streaming universe find us. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you on Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>